This is Registry, a podcast from Office Supply Publishing and Klaus Gunpoint. The National Recording Registry was announced on April 13th, and this is a fascinating list, and one that I highly approve of in a number of ways, because there are things that I would have fought for and things that I never would have considered in a million years. And the first is James P. Johnson's Harlem Strut. It is a classic of the stride piano method, or it's often called the Harlem Stride along with U.B. Blake, Sounds of Africa. And it's basically the left hand does the bass line going back and forth, back and forth, sort of hitting high and low notes. And it's it's a definitive sound. And it definitely got the sort of attention of the world in which sort of jazz was evolving through. That was from 1921. The entirety of presidential speeches by Franklin D. Roosevelt, of course, the most famous of which being the uh, post-Pearl Harbor and so many other sort of speeches, he his presidency really proved the power of mass media within the landscape of American politics, far more than any of the sort of 19, early 1900s newsreels. Uh, even late 1800s, when you had people like Cleveland, when you had McKinley and Garfield, not Garfield, McKinley and Roosevelt, and all of the sort of first wave of mass media age presidents. But really, it was Roosevelt and his work. Uh, I have seen War, of course, being the most classic of them. Walking the Floor Over You by Ernest Tubbs, 1941. I have not heard this song in year. But it's important because it was, there's an electric guitar. And Bob Wills, of course, sort of pioneered the electric guitar in uh, country music, but it's beautifully done. It is one of those super, it gets you into that world so well. And Ernest Tubb, I think, doesn't get the respect that he deserves outside of the country music world. He's in the Country Music Hall of Fame, for example. But I think you got Ernest Tubb, you got uh, Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. You have this sort of whole world of Western music, I would say, as opposed to country Western. But it really was a massive, massive influence on how country and Western and bluegrass and so on and so forth would sort of go on to sort of become a more popular style of American music that was suitable for the radio. On a note of triumph, this, one of the ones that I will be spearheading is a series from The Free Company. And it was a whole bunch of writers like William Soroyan, Orson Welles, Sherwood Anderson, whole bunch of writers from the early 1940s writing in a way to try and bring about ideas of Americanism to support the war, honestly, to, you know, the war was obviously coming. So it had to be sort of, we had to sort of understand, because we were in a peaceful mindset. This is interesting. So on a note of triumph is about the Allied victory in Europe, 
right after VE Day. I think it was like a week later. And it's hosted by Martin Gable. And it sort of showed not only the evolution of the war, but how we won. <laughs> and it's it's beautifully done. It's not subtle. Not at all. Um, they even mentioned that in the note <laughs> of the uh, National uh, Recording Registry. I think that's really important, actually, because we were at a time when, in many ways, subtlety went out the window, which is why I want the free company on, because it goes in sort of a different direction with that. Jesus Gave Me Water by the Soulsters from 1950. And it's interesting, it was the first recording session done by Sam Cooke, who also is on the registry a couple other places. It's an interesting piece. It's not, it's one you've probably heard, but it's not one that's like, oh yeah, that has to be on. At least not to me. But the early Cook recording is an important aspect. One of the greatest albums ever made, Ellington at Newport. Duke Ellington is one of the masters of American music. I put him right up there with Gershwin, Irving Berlin, Miles Davis, Quincy Jones, the folks who helped shape what American music would become. And it's a masterpiece. It really is. And I think the best example of Ellington at his peak. Others would argue that. They may have a deeper knowledge of Duke Ellington than I do, but I do like Max Roach. We insist Mac Roach's new Freedom Now Suite, 1960. Max Roach is one of the most important drummers of the 20th century. No question. And this is a piece that... It's... It is an important part of bringing about the sort of the civil rights struggle with music that isn't quite where you would expect it to pop up. But here you have sort of this pushed form, because it's not just jazz, even though you had, you know, Coleman Hawkins, Walter Benton, who is another absolutely not nearly known enough figure. You had Booker Little, you have James Schenck, who was an amazing bassist. And this actually led to Roach sort of awakening. And the, the classic line is, I'll never again play anything that does not have social significance. And he also urged black musicians to employ our skill to tell the dramatic story of our people. Hugely important aspect of how, going forward, the entire world of music changed the christmas song by nat king cole it's interesting i mean jack frost nipping at your nose uh it's a nice portrayal of the song and an excellent example of nat king cole i just think there's so much more nat king cole out there that has more significance but of course it also had huge sales and is one of those songs that we now associate with Christmas. So it does definitely fill that historical and social aspect that you really want for something from the National Recording Registry. Tonight's the Night by the Shirelles, 1961, a fantastic record. It's their first album, which, you know, they're sort of the on the Mount Rushmore of girl groups. They're right up there. But most importantly, it's got the 
most important song of the whole girl group of the early 60s. And that was Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow? No question. And I think it's a great album. Moon River by Andy Williams, 1962. The world of adult contemporary music came out of Andy Williams. And Moon River is a great song. The The fact that it's not the version that became most popular because of the movie, uh, written by, of course, the world's all-time greatest songwriter, Henry Mancini. But it's, it's phenomenal, and many, many, many people have covered it. Andy Williams' version is really good. And I think that is one of the reasons why it became so important. I often, you know, one of my favorite bits in any of the Fletch films, the one, is uh, when he's getting the proctologist examined, he goes, Moon River. This is by far the most important one to me personally. It's a Small World by the Disneyland Boys Choir, 1964. It's written by the Sherman Brothers, of course. And it first appeared with, they had It's a Small World at the 64 World's Fair in New York. And of course, it's a phenomenal, important piece because probably billions by this point of people have interacted with this song. And it has this sort of cultural thing of it gets stuck in your head and it's a world of laughter, a world of fear, but it's instantly recognizable. But it's also something else that's important. And I talk about this a lot when I talk about the National Film Registry, this idea of song or film as attraction. And here it's most pointed. This ride is made by this song. And you have all these wonderful figures, but it's the song that puts you into this world. And that's something that I think it's ignored a lot. One of my all-time favorites is Reach Out, I'll Be There by The Four Tops. The Four Tops are a great band. And I think here having them doing this sort of, it's a more bouncy song, I guess would be the best way to put it. But it's one of those it's one of those songs that just, you know, once you hear it, it's like you would never think of this as the first song off the top of your head. But when it hits you, it's like, yeah, that's definitely that's definitely one of the big ones. Here's a huge one for me and a massive influence on what little comp- composition I do myself. Terry Riley's In C. It is not so much a piece as it is 53 melodic phrases that get repeated at sort of the improvised discretion of each player. And it's, it's incredible. And when you hear it, it's, it's repetitive. It's kind of annoying at times, but at the same time, there is an intensity and it massively important. It was first performed at the San Francisco Tape Music Center. And uh, the people who were there, people like Terry Riley, Steve Reich, uh, Morton Sabotnik, uh, the late, great Pauli Oliveros. You had all these great people work. And this is the stuff that was coming out of it. Arguably, this is the beginning of minimalist music. But it really is massively important. An influence on everyone from, I think, it was influenced by John Cage more than it influenced John Cage. But Cage's later work sort of dealt delved into this world a bit, but you definitely see it in Philip Glass. You 100% see it in both Michael Nyman and John John Adams. So it's remarkable stuff. The Call of Hank Aaron's 715th Home Run. I've heard it a hundred times over the years, 
And it is, it's one of those sports moments that is ingrained. I know the TV version more than the, the radio call, but here's the funny thing. A number, when I think of the TV version, I hear the radio call, which is bizarre. I don't know why that happens. <laughs> Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen, a song that has had several lifetimes, the most in me, to me personally, because I was born in 74 and it came out in 75. And A Night at the Opera is one of the truly great albums in rock history. But of course, in Wayne's world, when they sing it while they're driving in the Garth, what is it, the Garth mobile? The Mirth mobile. And it's, it just isn't a powerful portion of the film because it's powerfully funny and powerfully real. I mean, that's me and my friends when we were in high school. But it has an staying power that's just phenomenal. And it's just a fun song. Don't Stop Believin' by Journey, another one that was rediscovered through popular culture. The most important of which, of course, being Glee. And that's a really important part. San Francisco brought out a bunch of bands in the early 80s. And the ones who succeeded were the ones who were more of the hard rock, arena rock type. Journey was probably the biggest of them. I kind of wish the punks had made it, because uh, I would love to see, you know, an Avengers or crime that lasted longer. Its biggest influence, not only on Glee, of course, but one of the great rock musicals of the 2000s, Rock of Ages, because it's the big closer of the show, that really was informed by how you build a song. And part of it is definitely that... It's just a great song. Also, the cover for Escape, 1981, great. Linda Ronstadt's Canciones de Mi Padre. When Linda Ronstadt, whose uh, racial background is basically the same as mine, she took specifically to working in a Spanish language series, and it's so great. She's a she's an amazing singer. Linda Ronstadt is an amazing singer. I think that this album is probably her best. Also, I love the fact that she comes on to uh, The Simpsons and does the bit with uh, Senor Plow. Nick of Time by Bonnie Raitt. Massive commercial success. Working with Don Was. Grammys, Album of the Year, everything. It was one of those albums that super powerful. Ray was already a, a legend at that point, and she just killed it. The Low End Theory by A Tribe Called Quest. Do I wish it was Three Foot High and Rising? Yes. Do I love this album? Yes. Enter the Wu-Tang 37 Chambers, 1993. Came out just, I think it was just after I graduated high school. And it's it's still one of the best albums that any, anyone made in the early 90s. Super, super well done. And Wu-Tang itself is a story that is difficult to tell, but it's even harder to believe. <laughs> Buena Vista Social Club, 1997. An amazing documentary. I was kind of hoping to see it on the National Film Registry, which it is. But it's also on the National Recording Registry, and that's... That's a questionable thing. Is the music 
separate enough to justify both. And honestly, in this case, I'd say it was. This is the one that made me the happiest when I saw. Live in La Vida Loca, 1999 by Ricky Martin. It was on the pre-show music loop. They had at AMC Theaters in 1999 for about three months, and it was amazing. Because it's that sort of the Latin pop thing that hadn't really broken here yet. <laughs> but it was massive. It was everywhere. For one thing, it was beautifully produced, and it was just, you could not help it. Songs in A Minor by Alicia Keys, an album that, I gotta admit, I'm not a huge Alicia Keys fan, but it's a good album. And one that definitely influenced sort of a generation of women to enter into sort of a new musical realm for for them. And while you had people like... Uh, Aaliyah and others who are working in that same vein, I think she hit in a very, very different way. And I'm not entirely sure how to express it, but definitely one of the great. This is a tough one, of course, the WNYC broadcast for the day of 9-11. I really think one of the things that needs to be seen is how we treat 9-11 as a historical moment within a larger aspect of how is it as a social, political, artistic moment. And the fact that we are, you know, when I do the National Video Registry, unofficially, of course, um, 9-11 is one of the first things. It's the coverage of all the five major news now. It's massively, massively important because one thing that I think is bizarre is that I had never heard is that their transmitters for WNYC were at the Manhattan Municipal Building and the towers were actually on the top of the World Trade Center. So when it collapsed, they lost it, except an engineer switched the AM signal to a, which basically, you know, sort of lowered the quality, but they could keep going. There's a story here that is bigger than just what is 9-11. It's how did it affect the media? And, you know, that sounds strange, but it's true. This is the one that's really interesting to me and I would argue with in many ways. WTF with Mark Marin's April 26, 2010 episode with Robin Williams. I'm, I'm interested because, yeah, definitely there needs to be more podcasts on the National Recording Registry. And I think WTF is not a bad choice. I think that this episode was also a pretty darn good episode. That it was, man, how to, how to best put this? Because it's hard to sort of wrap your head around. The reference on the actual registry essays basically talks about how this was a turn of people seeing how podcasts were viewed. A lot of people just saw them sort of as uh, personal hobby projects, but or you know extensions of radio shows that were already out there. But instead, you know, Mark Marin redefined it, and that's not really the case. But I under it's like saying that there was really true crime started with serial, which 100% when it the day it becomes available needs to be on the National Recording Registry. I think that. There were so many things that were going on prior to this. I got into podcasts in 2006 where they were doing things that were very WTF-like, but at the same time, 
you didn't have a easy unified way to find them. I found podcasts through MySpace, which, you know, goes to show you some things. But I think as a form, this episode shows what this layer of podcasting has become. I think it is a fairly narrow layer compared to what is more important to me, which is the idea of a podcast as an expression of the people around. And this puts me away. A lot of people want their podcast to be sort of mass media consumption, similar to talk shows and stuff like that. And I don't. I want it to be a more personal, more interactive, freer sort of idea. But it's an interesting choice, and I I can't fault them for including WTF. But I do think that there are others that they could have gone with. Particularly something by Adam Curry, because I like Adam Curry. And that is the 2022 list. What does it make me think? It makes me think that the National Recording Registry is smart. It has a slightly different tinge than I would, but hey, no problem with it, honestly. And I think... When we look back at these selections, we'll say that this is the list that started to expand outwards in a very different way than it had previously. I hope to see more selections like these in the future, and I'm definitely going to nominate, definitely nominate the free company. There are a lot of albums I would want to do, of course. There are a lot of podcasts I'd like to do. Of course, I'd really like to nominate what I consider to be the finest podcast in history, which is this one. Uh, <laughs> no, we're not 10 years old yet. But there are some that, you know, need to be out there because they are important and significant. The early episodes of Last Podcast on the Left, for example. Serial once becomes eligible, I think, in four, three or four years. But there are lots of podcasts that were out there in the 2008 to nine period that I think should be on. Anyhow, thank you for listening to Registry. We'll be back at some point. Who knows when? But I hope you'll stay tuned. Stay tuned.